0: The views expressed in this program are those of the participants.
1: Come. Yes, Mr. Data. I'm sorry to disturb you, sir. Oh, not at all. I'm here studying the intricacies of Bajoran aqueduct management. I would welcome a little interruption. Please sit down. I require your advice, sir. I have come to an impasse regarding my recent unexplained experience. Hmm. Your vision of. Dr. Sun, how is your investigation proceeding? I have analyzed over 4,000 different religious and philosophical systems, as well as over 200 psychological schools of thought in an effort to understand what happened. And what have you found? I've been unable to find a single interpretation of the images I saw during the time I was shut down. The hammer, for instance, has several meanings. The Klingon culture views the hammer as a symbol of power. However, the Takwa tribe of Nagor sees it as an icon of hearth and home. The Ferengis view it as a sign of sexual prowess. I'm curious, Mr. Data, why are you looking at all these other cultures? The interpretation of visions and other metaphysical experiences are almost always culturally derived. And I have no culture of my own. Yes, you do. You're a culture of one, which is no less valid than a culture of one billion. Perhaps the key to understanding your experience is to stop looking into other sources for a meaning. When we look at Michelangelo's David or Simney's tomb, we don't ask, what does this mean to other people? The real question is, what does it mean to us?
2: Today, everyone, it's Thursday, October fifteenth, 2015. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, online and on iTunes, where we'll be with you for the next hour or so. No, it's not right wing. It's just right. Fade into colour, colour into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Well, we're down to the last frenzied days before the Canadian federal election, and I somehow feel compelled to comment on either my expectations about the outcome or offer some sort of sage advice on how you should vote this election. I'm not going to do either of those things nor am I going to suggest which way I will vote or even if if I will vote. Many of you have already voted and many others listening to me now will already have done so by the time you've tuned in. Voting is uh you know often a depressing or anticlimactic experience for a lot of people isn't it especially since most votes cast are for a losing candidate you know. So in a way to those who subscribe to this kind of thinking, if you don't vote for the winner, your vote was a wasted vote, or if not that, at least a lost vote. Of course, that's not the reality of the situation, but psychologically, that's kind of how it feels. Another factor is being confronted with voting for the package deal, as they call it. Voting on a single issue or a single concern that you support can cause you to vote for a party that will actually do greater harm in other areas that also concern you. So, good luck with your voting roulette wheel. (laughs) Now, regardless of who wins the election, we are headed for difficult times ahead. Uh, You know, the more leftward we drift towards statism and government domination of the economy, the more difficult I think those times will be. And the big question has to be asked. Is the golden age of Western civilization coming to an end, or, or has it already ended? A lot of people are asking that question already. So, for the balance of today's show, I plan to reflect upon what you know, some of what I've seen and what I've heard about this election, both from the pages of the various media and from the various individuals I've encountered, you know, who've expressed their views on the subject. I regret to report that it doesn't appear to be a pretty picture. And uh, But, you know, I remain eternally optimistic. But just to remind us all that we are living in Canada, after all, Elections Canada issued a warning to voters this past August 28th, as, as reported in the National Post by Jake Edmiston, that if any voters take any ballot selfies with their cell phones or cameras and make them public, they could be fined or jailed. Under the Canada Elections Act, It is apparently illegal to, quote, show his or her ballot when marked. Elections Canada spokespeople say that the vote is, quote, kept secret to minimize coercion and vote buying, and University of Toronto political science professor Yasmin Daywood agrees that this is an infringement on free speech, but is, quote, reasonably justified in a free and democratic society, end quote. Now, if you're threatening us with fines and jail sentences for letting people know who we voted for after we voted, then what the hell's your definition of a free and democratic society? And vote buying? Are you kidding? That's that's all elections are about anymore. Have they not been hearing the election promises? Promises of spending taxpayer dollars? Promises of social benefits and entitlements? Boy, Only a tiny fraction of voters vote on principle or on a knowledge of the larger issues or the bigger picture of our political environment, and this bodes ill for our political future and therefore for our economic freedom and personal freedom as well. And that, in a nutshell, ladies and gentlemen, is but one small irritant in a sea of irritants that have brought us upon a malaise such as I've never seen before witness to this degree, and much of it first-hand. Don't know if you've noticed, but an extraordinary number of people have expressed their views on this election who have been seeing it as, you know, like like their last chance at something. Either saving something precious or creating something new as if there'd be no future opportunities to vote on the same issues or to change any laws in the future. But it's something more than that, even. The more I've been listening, the more I get the impression that a lot of people don't think we'll even make it to the next election before whatever it is that they fear might happen. The scary part, I think, is that it's increasingly looking like they might be right, although we might be talking about two entirely different things. So before we leap into the next of my small, irritant issues on the greater global picture, here's a reminder to write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, Subscribe to Just Write on iTunes and visit us on www.justwritemedia.org. Now, in the West, you know, we, we, we live in an age of irrationality and it's getting worse all the time. Western culture has been predominantly a culture of rationality. And that is what made possible not only our freedom and increased standard of living, but it made it possible to achieve true human potential in a way never before experienced on the face of this planet many of the manifestations of this irrationality seem insignificant or petty you know disconnected from the bigger picture and therefore appear to be overblown if made an issue of you know like the penalties for taking selfies and posting them online while other manifestations of this collective irrationality concern epically important issues whose significance are deeply underblown or brushed under the carpet to say the least. Domestically, we continue to ignore the elephants in the room, social spending on everything from healthcare to education, social of course, meaning taxpayer-funded or monopoly-controlled. Internationally, the world is at war with political Islam which has completely dominated the West's political discussions and agendas, even our own election here, with the discussion increasingly favoring an end to freedom and the basic values of Western culture and democracy, and openly so, and and you might be surprised to hear that. The sinister left is on the march, folks, and most people on the right are completely oblivious to it, except on the most superficial level. The number of media commentaries and talk show opinions expressed on this general theme have been reaching a crescendo whose outcome, if any, remains to be seen in terms of you know, anybody taking any meaningful action. But the outcomes of our current political direction and attitudes are much more predictable, assuming, of course, we don't change those directions or those attitudes or, or any of those factors. Let's face it, real change rarely occurs Um, at the source, politically, until conditions become intolerable enough in whatever regard that might apply. That's when people begin to act. And are those times just around the corner? Consider some of these newspaper headlines. (laughs) Get this. Warning economic tsunami is coming by Randy Richmond at the Free Press. Global recession looming say ex- say experts or or says experts, sorry, Jonathan Rather in, in the Financial Post. Global economy now on verge of perfect storm by Gwen Dyer in the Free Press. The left is winning the big fight writes Andrew Coyne in the National Post. Times up for western civilization writes Michael Warren again in the Free Press. And then of course there's the The Leap Manifesto, a leap into pure irrationalism and an explicit hatred of capitalism. This is what's going on around us today. And that's ahead on the show today, but first, here's another one of those minor irritant issues that help to illustrate the level of how bad things are getting, and of how obsessed with race, religion, and culture we in the West have been forced to become. The obsessed mindset of the North American left on these issues is no different from the mindset that existed in Germany during the 1930s. Only now the mindset is is sort of pointed in a different direction, but with all the same intentions and the same misunderstandings. Group identity is the calling card of the day. Individualism and individual identity was the calling card of Western values having tossed aside the falseness and the superficiality of group identities and group rights and the inevitable conflicts and injustices that those concepts lead to. So, you know, you have to imagine my surprise when I see in the Free Press and on the front page of the National Post uh, this article by Kate Dubinsky, dated August 28th. So this occurred before uh, school came back in, and and this is about orientation week on some of the campuses, more most particularly here on University Campus of uh, Western Ontario, and uh, the headline reads a twist on tradition. Unlike past orientation week, student leaders are being asked not to wear attire from other cultures, and it reads. Leave your native hairdresses and and fake dreadlocks at home. And don't bother with the mohawks, bandanas, tank tops, or short shorts either. Western University student leaders will arrive on campus to a beefed-up dress code for orientation week in a bid to make the school welcoming to all students. These are upper-year leaders who who help first-year students feel welcome and make their transition to Western Smooth, said Taryn Skripnik, a student government official and co-chair of the Orientation Planning Committee. In the past, some student leaders have worn items because of tradition, and it wasn't their intent for it to be cultural (laughs) cultural appropriation. Orientation Week student leaders, called SOFs, are divided into teams that help first-year students move in, get to know campus, and adjust to student life. In the past, soft teams have dressed in similar costumes. Everyone from a certain faculty wearing a certain color, for example, to stand out from the crowd and build team spirit. But the issue of dressing up in attire or headwear worn by other cultures, from native headdresses with elaborate feathers to donning fake dreadlocks to mimic Rastafarian culture, has been largely criticized in popular culture. Now, I I was actually surprised to read that because I've been personally unaware of this. In fact, my experience has been somewhat the opposite, but we'll get to that a little later. The article carries on. And the planning committee has had complaints from students about frosh leaders wearing culturally insensitive garb, Skripnik said. And, you know, complaints, I'm thinking, about cultural insensitivity? Can anybody complain about cultural sensitivity? Sounds like a bigger problem to me. These sensitive people need to be desensitized to race and culture because otherwise we would call them racists, wouldn't we? And yet that's not the way it's going. It seems to go in the opposite direction. But the article continues. In general, you don't have to practice a culture to realize that some of this could be inappropriate, she said. You know, when I see a a phrase like that, practice a culture, that very phrase seems to deny any understanding of what a culture is. You just practice a culture, what, for five seconds? That's not what we're even talking about here. And it goes on, the wearing of turbans and hijabs by students who aren't wearing them for cultural reasons is also prohibited. Now, Now, you see what they're saying? So now your culture... Not your individual right is what qualifies you to wear certain clothing. No wonder we argue about the stupidest things in this country. But what you can wear, what you can't wear, uh, you know, or just about anything else that could be in some person's mind to be associated with culture. So somebody can come up to you, oh, you can't wear that. That might offend someone. And Of course, it doesn't. It's the person who's complaining to you and making the rules up. They're the problem. And she continues, Quote, "We've had some pushback from certain soft soft teams because they say it's tradition." But I don't fear uh, foresee anyone breaking the rules, Skripnik said. And when I read that, I'm thinking, well, isn't tradition an important element of culture? Isn't that a cultural thing on campus? Isn't that part of the ca- campus culture? But apparently not. They're totally overriding it, just with one sweep of the pen, one, one new rule. And... Uh, it's just unbelievable what I'm seeing here. But that's a culture that the rules have been written to wipe out, so I'm thinking that maybe tradition on campus isn't an important culture anymore. The committee decided to also ban, get this, bandanas worn over the face because it's, quote, unwelcoming, she said. Orientation is supposed to be welcoming to everyone, and bandanas covering the face could be threatening, especially for students who come from violent countries, said Eddie Avila, Orientation Week coordinator. (laughs) Do they not realize how insulting that is to the people who actually might be coming from those countries? What are you saying about them, that, that, that they're paranoid, that, they've got, that they're bringing with them some kind of baggage we've all got to be really careful of, and we've got to treat them like they're mentally handicapped or something like this? That's the message I'm getting from all of this. I'm not getting any equality and welcome them into our culture type of messages from any of these things. And this it says students, of course, are still welcome to use color to differentiate their teams from other teams, he, he added. Well, how nice of you. Again, it's not just here at Western. Brock University in St. Catharines calls its orientation week uh, Bracella this year. Among the do's and don'ts of Bracella, quote, don't appropriate other cultures to make a fashion statement, end quote. And I'm just asking the question other cultures? Aren't we all supposed to be one big culture? Aren't all of these cultural additions? to our western tradition supposed to be integrated into the western culture talk about making efforts at keeping cultures apart talk about going out of your way to keep people apart who are who are different by making us so sensitive to each other that hey i don't even, i don't even want to be around you anymore because who knows well, who's going to complain about something send a complaint you know personally I, i've never regarded the wearing of such native headgear or dreadlocks as an intended insult or offense towards anybody If anything, it's either a neutral thing entirely, or a complimentary recognition of whatever culture may have been represented. I I did my own personal survey on this phenomenon recently, and knowing that I would be discussing this issue in the future, of course, and without exception, every person I asked about a sports team, for example, bearing the name Redskins, which has been now banned for some reason, considered that name to be a badge of honor. Not of an insult or a put-down of any sort. But for the left, any reference to skin color, race, culture, or religion is considered a form of racism and an insult to the race or culture that you're talking about, just to even mention them by name. And therefore you can't, of course, entertain any serious discussions on those matters for public issues. But cultural appropriation? Give me a break. That's completely inappropriate. inappropriate as we'll discover shortly after listening in to this interesting interpretation of cultural misappropriation, comedically presented to us thanks to Barth Gimble and the gang on Fernwood Tonight from the 70s hit hits, hits, sitcom series. We'll be back after this.
0: <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> My next guest is from Porter City. He's a director of the Washburn Foundation for Equal Education. It's a pretty wonderful thing to be involved with. It sure is, Absolutely. In this day and age. Absolutely. Please welcome Professor Harlan Washburn. What a treat.
3: Yes, it is. You know, I have to pause here to make a comment and an observation. Uh, your name is Harlem. Harlem is the name of a section of New York City where black people live. And here you are, yourself, a black individual. That's sort of a coincidence, almost a Ripley's, believe it or not, uh, bit. Yeah, my name is Harlan. That's with an N. Harlan! Harlan! Is... I'm so embarrassed. All these years I've been pronouncing it a Harlem. <laughs> apologies and it just shows how little we Americans know of your history and (laughs) very Arlen Arlen
0: okay doctor um what exactly is the Washburn Foundation all about
4: well boy you see my father was the grandson of a slave oh boy and he was the first member of our family to get an education And he made a small fortune in industry. That's great. And it was his lifelong dream to build a school where both blacks and whites could be together, go to school together, in a manner that was free and just. You see, all the children, both blacks and whites, would be on one huge central campus. Mm -hmm. That's with the finest teachers, the finest faculties, all located in one central place. Fantastic. Uh, Oh, here's an artist's rendering of a proposed complex.
0: Okay. Well, let me move this out of the way. Okay. We can get oh. that in there. Are we getting that on... I mean, let's move it a little bit over here. getting that on three there? Okay. Fine. Now, wait a minute, Dr. Washburn. This looks exactly like one of those uh, old southern uh, mansions on the plantations. For well, again, you're right, boy. You see, the symbolism is
4: important here because it was on plantations such as this that this whole problem of racial injustice started. True. (laughs) So, with the black children studying and the white children studying in a building like this, we'll all be going back to our roots. Uh Then we
0: can start all over. Wonderful idea. But I can do it right this time.
3: And if I may make another interjection here, speaking of that, you people must have such a history and so many stories about growing up on the plantations and the social injustice and being brought over to this country as slaves that someone should write a book.
0: Jerry, Jerry, Jerry. They did. They did? Uh... They did. It was a bestseller. I'm and they sorry. made a television movie. It was on a couple of nights in a row. Oh, did I miss and I read... it <laughs> Gone with the Wind. I know. <laughs> I heard <that. laughs> Not much of a reader. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. You see.
4: this building would be your classes devoted to mathematics, Mm -hmm. physics, English literature, Mm -hmm. and etc. And on this side, over here would be six basketball courts. Mm -hmm.
0: Okay, so according to your plan, then blacks and whites would study together in unison under this one roof here. That's great. Not exactly. You see,
4: this is where the black children study. And these... Over here. These are the white classrooms. (laughs) They are together, the races are together, yet separate. See, and in this way we'll satisfy the Supreme Court without running the risk of having one of our brothers
3: marry one of your sisters. That's a, that's a good point, that's true, but uh, Correct me if I'm wrong again, but you people do not object if one of your brothers marries a black sister.
0: <laughs> it's all right, yeah. Very point officer, your family is perfectly okay for one of your own brothers to marry one of your own sisters, I think. Might explain a great deal of it.
2: (laughs) We're talking about the idea of cultural appropriation, one of the latest creations of political correctness that's that's just so wrong. It's not funny. Actually, what am I saying? So wrong it actually is funny, <laughs> if you stop to think about it. In the September 22nd uh, issue of the Gazette, Western University's on-campus newspaper, letter writer Ishan Tiku, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, from the Engineering Department has his, you know, his, a few of his own points to make on this cultural appropriation policy. And he wrote, Another year at Western, another controversial rule change regarding O-Week. While there has been considerable discussion around contentious aspects of the changes, such as whether dreadlocks count as cultural appropriation, or whether bandanas are all that intimidating, a couple of important points are being overlooked. And at this point, Ishan criticized the process by which the policy was arrived at. And the policy was created so late in the summer, he noted, that many soft teams had, quote, already purchased now-banned merchandise, such as fake dreadlocks. And then he writes, uh, furthermore, he writes, and this is quoting him again, this rule change continues a troubling trend in the way of little transparency to the decision-making process. For example, the most that the student body knows about the rationale for banning bandanas over the face is that, quote, the committee receives specific complaints from students. And he asks, how many complaints? Against whom were they directed? Finally, while keeping incoming students happy is an admirable goal, he says, we must also question the motivation to ban bandanas because, quote, it may disturb some incoming students that have come from countries where they've been exposed to violence and unrest, end quote, as stated by Orientation Week co-chair Terrence Skripnik. As was noted in Greg Lukianoff and Jonathan Haidt's excellent essay in The Atlantic, titled The Coddling of the American Mind, taking the concept of trigger warning so far as to remove any and all offending artifacts from view is actually hurting mental health on campuses across America, North America, he writes. They point out that, quote, according to the most basic tenets of psychology, helping people with anxiety disorders avoid the thing they fear, is misguided. Actions taken to protect the mental well-being of students by banning offending items are an inadequate workaround to solving the underlying mental health challenge. Such an approach, while well-intentioned, is a disservice to the student population and should not continue, end quote. And that's from Ishan, who wrote that letter to the Gazette at Western. Now, you know, that's a great critique by Ishan, but hasn 't he also missed the point or or is he being brilliantly sarcastic? You know, just as I observed how cultural misappropriation rules suggest that there's something wrong with the cultures being mentioned, Ishan has presented an argument that this is indeed so. Apparently, all of these visitors to our country are suffering from mental health challenges, and we do need to treat them differently from those whose cultures it is okay to appropriate, whichever cultures those might be. As long as people think like this, ladies and gentlemen, the ideal of equality is is a complete non-starter, and what's going on on our campuses is very disturbing. I'm sure that there are elements of the university soft guide dress code requirements that might have been reasonable under certain circumstances. But as soon as the term, you know, a term like cultural misappropriation was tossed into the discussion, the discussion became highly inappropriate. And that's how I feel on the issue. It's just, it's it's a terrible situation, leading us into more and more division in society over cultural issues, over racial issues, over religious issues. Any issue where someone can be visibly seen to be different from someone else. That's not the country... I ever envisaged living in, and it's not the country I lived in up until very recently. So something big has changed in Canada. And that's something I'm going to talk about as we return from our break. That's it for a couple of my minor irritants about political correctness and our continuing drift into a society of class, racism, and inequality. Sad stuff. Which is why I think it's time to take another break for a smile. And when we return, it's on to the bigger serious stuff as we turn sharply left.
0: Um, (laughs) Doctor, I'm sure that if you can pull this off, it's going to be remembered as one of the greatest feats in education, but I'm also afraid that these feats are failing me right now. (laughs) Uh, How how on earth can you claim that this is fair
4: to the white children? You see, in my school, all the children will get a chance to learn things they never had an opportunity to learn before. Mm -hmm. The black children will get top-notch instructions in things like reading, writing, arithmetic, mm-hmm. each black child will actually see and handle books.
3: They'll have, their own,
4: they'll have their own pens, their own pencils, and they'll even get a decent lunch,
0: too. Well, I guess my blessing. I, I'm all for that. And what, uh, while this is going on, what will the white kids be doing in these little shacks here? Well, see, the, the white kids, they can
4: learn things that they were sheltered from in the past we'll have classes in fundamental agriculture uh, that's how to plant things how to pick things how
0: to tie things up in bales and how to handle it. the barnyard animals too so what we're saying is this is the home of the three r's and this will be the four h out here with the white kids out there in the barnyard um, by means of separating it like that i don't understand how can the white kids learn anything that will help them get a job in in the big city which seems to be what's happening today.
4: well you know barth we have Excellent training in the Faculty of Auto Mechanics and Body Work. Mm-hmm. Now, see, we'll have a special department of shine and car wash. <laughs> and over here is the Center for, uh, Baggage Handling. Yeah. <laughs> and for the white kid who is especially polite, we'll have night courses in butlery
0: and quartering.
3: <laughs> Doctor, And from what I understand, it's hard to get good help lately, too. There's always a need for that. (laughs) Here's where you look for it. Not to mention Uh. those car washes which are going Uh. sky high.
5: Welcome to paradise, Mr. Merriweather. I believe you've been looking for me. My name is Hippocritus Noah. My guests and I place a premium on our privacy. We don't want any unwelcomed guests, such as men sent by governments who disagree with my political philosophy.
4: And what is your philosophy? Are you some kind of anarchist?
5: Quite the opposite. I believe in an orderly world. A far cry from the chaos we find ourselves in today. We are building a new future here. A new beginning for mankind. A new chapter in human history will open right here on my island. Island? Allow me to explain. You see, Mr. Merriweather, not only do I intend to create a new future, I intend to create a new world. At each one of these points, I have hidden a new form of laser, one that can penetrate the Earth's crust down into the mantle itself. Global earthquakes? Those were only tests. Soon, I will activate all of these lasers together, and when I do, they will produce worldwide earthquakes the likes of which we have never felt before.
6: Killing everyone on the planet.
5: More than that. There comes a time when a house has been so damaged by termites that you must not only kill the termites, but demolish the house and build again.
2: Yeah, demolish the house. (laughs) That pretty much sums up the philosophy and attitude and expected outcome of the Leap Manifesto, which is the name of both the book by Naomi Klein and the film feature based on that book, which was recently screened, I understand, at the Toronto International Film Festival. Of course, in the case of the Leap Manifesto, the house would be capitalism and the termites are the capitalists. Kill them all and start all over. (laughs) On a full-page article in the September 15th National Post, the headline reads, The Left's Big Leap which suggests one of faith, of course, but which is actually about anti-capitalist Naomi Klein's Leap Manifesto, which takes moronic ideas, such as a few of those that we entertained in the first half of our show, to new heights of irrationality. Written by Joseph Breen, the subheading of the article reads, Naomi Klein has a new manifesto, and the usual suspects are backing it. Listed among the usual suspects were, well, of course, Naomi Klein, David Suzuki, of course, Rob McMurtry, R- Donald Sutherland, Ellen Page, Leonard Cohen, Pamela Anderson, film director Philippe Falardeau, Alanis Morissette, Guja, president of, H- of the Haida Nation, actress Rachel McAdams, arcade fire musician Wynne Butler, and others who attended the film festival's launching of the film. The Leap Manifesto included filmmaker John Grayson, Stephen Lewis, and Maud Barlow. Writes Bean, quote, Manifestos are a tricky business. Some articulate new and urgent ideas and are wildly successful, like the Communist Manifesto or the Declaration of Independence. Most, however, are case studies and ideological futility, an illustration of the eternal law that saying it does not make it so. Like, for example, the Houston Manifesto, which sought to save the political left from the torpor that followed the Iraq War. We can start from the premise that Canada is facing the deepest crisis in recent memory, the Manifesto begins. Deepening poverty and inequality are a scar on the country's present, and Canada's record on climate change is a crime against humanity's future. And that was from Breen's article in his commentary on the Leap Manifesto, which appeared four days later on September 19th in the National Post. Conrad Black wrote that, and I quote, The Leap Manifesto's 15 demands are a comprehensive assault on the whole concept of economic growth, a radical program for the abolition of carbon-based energy use, and with it the entire petroleum industry, and the fragmentation of society into small units, even as almost all economic activity was collectivized. But there are three fundamental problems with the whole concept, says Black. First... No one's going to repeal capitalism because it's the only system that's aligned with the universal human desire to have more money. (laughs) Yet it is also in the nature of capitalism, he says, that it is unable to resist the temptation to imprudent pursuit of enhanced gain. This invariably leads to corrective periods, sometimes very destructive ones, of which the present may perhaps be an example. The second problem, says Black, is their disturbingly naive faith in government. And last, he says, Klein and her comrades seem wholly unaware that not 5% of the people would support this frago of nonsense, and if it were ever enacted, the results would be national suicide for the unions and the native people, just as much as for the oil industry. The fact that Klein's book won a prestigious award reminded me of of Lenin's astute observation that the capitalists are, quote, so stupid and greedy, they'll sell us the rope with which we'll hang them. The author may have thought the same thing, but this is not Tsarist Russia. And, quote, well, you know, I couldn't uh, disagree more with Black's assertions that, quote, no one's going to repeal capitalism or that a naive faith in government will present an obstacle to any politicians wanting to increase the power of government, nor do I agree that fewer than 5% of the people would support Klein's nonsensical manifesto. I, I just don't know what planet Black is residing on. First of all, capitalism, you can't repeal that by a single edict. It's not like they're going to come and pass a law against capitalism. Capitalism is a condition in which the government stays out of economic matters entirely, meaning that government adopt its proper role as referee, keeping the economic marketplace free of coercion and fraud, and not becoming a player in the game, which means using state coercion and fraud, often in, just in the form of price-fixing, uh, price Uh, to support some form of privately owned monopoly or state enterprises. We've been talking about that a lot on the show lately. And talk about your your typically conservative and useless and irrelevant defense of capitalism. You see see why we're losing? You see why we're losing? Quote, it's the only system aligned with the universal human desire to have more money. Yeah, that's it. Socialists don't have a desire to have more money. (laughs) Fascists don't, obviously not. Even anarchists, they don't want any more money. You know, really, has he not noticed how much money all of the Arab dictators in the Mideast East have? They don't have capitalism, and does Black actually believe that our current, you know, corrective period—is that what he's calling it—which is not being described as a correction by any of the other commentators I've cited on the economy—was caused by what an imprudent pursuit of enhanced gain? What kind of gobbledygook is that? He's not even pointing the finger in the right direction. We, it's pretty clear what caused that. And it's all the government's intervention in the marketplace causes all these things. From every reasonable analysis of that economic crisis, as with the Great Depression itself, we can always find uh, government economic intervention at the root of the distortions and downturns. That's what causes them. Is prohibitions, prohibitions, blockages, which take many forms, including outright prohibition, taxation, regulations that are, are are silly and not in keeping with what is necessary or essential. But these are a lot of the ways that capitalism is being dismantled piece by piece. So, but, but, my point is not to argue specifics with Conrad Black, okay? What I want to illustrate is how poorly those on the right supposedly quote unquote defend capitalism while other while offering virtually nothing other than the same stale bromides to counter the left's continuing assault, which which is irrational, and yet the right is not uh, it's not meeting the challenge. There's the problem. Conrad Black, I think, is in complete denial if he thinks that no one would ever repeal capitalism. That happened. It's already been done. And it was executed by conservatives everywhere. Even before Ayn Rand wrote her monumental and ever-correct Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal. (laughs) Unknown, that's an understatement. Especially when it comes to most conservatives. And this is why the left is winning. And, uh, well, you know, at least one writer on the right seems to be aware of the fact, and that was Andrew Coyne, in his year-end column, headed The Left is Winning the Big Fight, who put it very succinctly, and by the way, this was literally year-end, it it appeared on December 31st, and he writes, The Left is winning. I don't mean this in a partisan sense. If the NDP represents the left, it had a terrible year, fading in the polls federally, turning into a miserable showing in the Ontario election, and losing two mayoral races in Winnipeg and Toronto. It had earlier been favoured to win, But in the contest of ideas, and that's the important distinction, in the contest of ideas, the left is very much on the march. Kathleen Wynne Wynne won the Ontario election on an aggressively left-wing budget and platform that not only increased spending, taxing, and borrowing, but proposed the first major addition to the social safety net in decades, the Ontario Retirement Pension Fund. Elsewhere, there are serious proposals on the table for a national daycare plan, a national pharmacare plan, a surge in spending on urban transit and other infrastructure. The left is doing all the running on the environment, where it is no longer taboo to talk about carbon pricing. Identity politics, sound familiar? That's what we are talking about in the beginning part of the show, with its obsessive focus on race, sex and class, dominates public discourse. Now some of these might be good ideas, and some might be bad, he writes. The point is, where is their equivalent on the right? What counterproposal has anyone heard from the right in the last year, or the last decade, to get the state out of something it's now doing, to deregulate an industry, or privatize a crown corporation, or well, pretty much any- anything? The most the right will allow itself is to oppose this or that proposal to expand the state, Once, it has assured itself it's on safe ground to politically do so. But to put forward ideas of its own, for improving society, grounded in principles that it believes in? Nowadays, that is exclusively the province of the left, he concludes. Well, aside from feeling slightly maligned by Coyne's failure to mention Freedom Party in Ontario, which of course has indeed done all of the things, apparently, that he's been looking for, his greater thesis is right on the mark. I can't argue with that. The left is winning because the right has given up the fight. Or even worse, it's joined the other side. And speaking of the other side, on the other side of our upcoming bumper, you'll be hearing the voice of British conservative philosopher Roger Scruton, as heard on a British interview recorded June 29th, 2014, in a continuation of our theme today, All That's Left. Wait.
1: Maybe I'm tired of being a hero. Maybe I've thought over what you've said and decided that you're absolutely right. About what? Everything the decadence of the world, the need for order. The more I think about it, the more I realise that your way may be the only way. You're gonna destroy this world and start a new one. What's the use of me continuing to defend a doomed planet? Can you see the sense in that? No. No. I'm an intelligence agent. And if there's any one thing I've learned, it is that there comes a point when the odds are against you and there is no reasonable course of action but to quit you need to start thinking about your new world order you may even need someone like me
5: if you think that by going over there you are going to destroy my control console you are wasting your time
1: I don't intend to destroy your console doctor I intend to
5: just activated the final laser sequence.
1: You've destroyed the world. It's working, just as you planned. You've done it, Doctor. Yes.
5: But somehow... I didn't expect to win.
7: The actual existing order is important. That's but, where you start from. Yeah, and the recognition that it's much easier to destroy things than to create them. Okay, so why are so many journalists of the lift? Because there's a, it's much easier to be against things than for them. To be against things, you just have to point out their faults and then say, we want the alternative. You don't have to define the alternative. Whereas if you're actually defending existing things, you're in a much more difficult position. And journalists uh, find that difficult. They have to acquaint themselves with a bit of history, acquaint themselves with what has happened uh, when people have tried to live without, you know, the legal order that they've inherited and so on. Well, let's go to uh, last Monday's Q&A.
3: My name's Tom, I'm from Socialist Alternative. That's a lie. I'm <laughs> <No, but laughs> actually quoting <laughs> you. So what why don't we is... uh, let the Minister answer yeah. your question? Well, can you oh, we I... do that? <laughs> well,
5: I actually haven't been given the well, opportunity. Go on,
3: so. I'm giving you an opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> okay, guys, you're doing yourself no favours.
6: And then the rest shut down the debate completely, forcing the ABC off air for several minutes. Uh, Roger... A lot of uh, sympathisers, a lot of people on the left have said, relax, this is just uh, democracy at work, is it?
7: People who want to stop argument, and in particular to shut up people with whom they disagree, are not contributing to the democratic process. They are, are of course, bringing it to a stop.
6: Now, the abuse and the shouting, you know, is that just students getting excited in their cause? Or is this intimidation, Mm -hmm. is the expression of force and shutting people down, is that, in fact the cause. Are they indulging in a totalitarian Mm. instinct? Is that really what's
7: going on? I think that's a very important point. uh, It's much more common to see this on the left than on the right. Um, Of course we did see it on the right, you could call it the right, in in Nazi Germany, but, but in normal conservative people do not approve of this kind of thing and don't well, the engage National in
6: socialists it. that actually count as being on the left but well exactly
7: okay um but uh, in in our time and i've certainly had this experience in england it's always been organized leftist forces that have done this and a lot at a certain time i couldn't speak in universities in britain because there would always be this welcome committee who, who was determined to shut me up and, uh, and perhaps also use violence against me. And I, I think there is a reason for this, which is that the, the left-wing position defines itself as oppositional It's against things. It has a vague abstract idea of some things it's in favour of, like equality or liberation or whatever, but never bothers to define that. But it knows very clearly that it's against this thing here now. And so it amplifies its own hatred of that thing by getting together in a group and thinking, you know, uh, and entertaining these self-righteous thoughts. You know, we are absolutely uh, uh, together in this. And we're going to go against those people and shut them up. And we're right to do so.
6: What is it with the left and violence? You say they, they get excited and all that, but the, vi- the force, the shutting yeah. down of debate, uh, even something like uh, the BDA, the uh, boycott and divestment movement to shut down yes. Israeli academics, etc, what is it with the force, the left and
7: violence? Yeah. Well, th- there is a, a sense of the weakness of their position underneath all this, that, that they are never able to define exactly what that society great society that they're going to pr- produce will be like uh, and they in order to prevent discussion of this uh, they concentrate only on the present The present evil, and and they do see things in moral terms. That the the person whom they're attacking is not someone who disagrees with them; he's someone who's evil, and therefore doesn't have the right even to disagree. And this is the reason why, when leftist governments get in power, they very often do go in a totalitarian direction. They start shutting down freedom of speech. They start actually trying to control institutions and to make sure that 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 things will remain like this forever.
2: That, again, was a highly edited excerpt from a June 2014 interview featuring conservative philosopher Roger Scruton. And I think Mr. Scruton is still having difficulty working with the left and right labels, as his interviewer kind of hinted at there, and really has still left a moral vacuum there himself. I couldn't couldn't get to a, a clear answer other than this ideal of conservatism he had. First of all, Hitler was a lefty. To consider a, a historical figure like him or even the Nazis as being on the right is, is a great error. Nazism was a leftist ideology. It's the fascist side of the coin of tyranny. On the other side of, the, of that coin is fascism's sister, <laughs> communism or socialism, both words meaning exactly the same thing. State control and restriction of individual freedoms and rights, which is pure leftist stuff. Conservatives are also against things and not just for them, as he says. But then again, I guess you you have to be careful with that word conservative these days. You're talking about a conservative in terms of ideals of some express sort or, or a conservative party, which are all on the left. And, you know, Ayn Rand used to always point out how conservatives will never be for something because to be able to do that, you have to be able to conceptualize. And so... This is not something conservatives have been noted for, particularly in the political field. Despite their subjectivism, the left is able to conceptualize, but fails to concretize its concepts, because those concepts are so unreal. They don't correspond to known laws of nature, morality, or science. And so that's the problem with with that whole concept of the left. It's just an unreal concept, but at least they're thinking The conservatives, on the other hand, are very concrete-bound, and they don't project into the future. They can deal with what is, and they can try to preserve what is, and that's something that that Mr. Scruton uh, talked about. Yeah, and and there's value in that, for sure, but they never think in terms of what might be. That has always been the wacky left's, um, you know, (laughs) that's been their, their monopoly. Conservatives have just given up on that because that's not where their minds are at. They're always conserving, 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 something that someone else created. So, then there's the question, why use force? Well, we always used to say this, you know, when when persuasion fails, use force. Force is all the left has to impose its philosophy, which (laughs) it's a philosophy of force. Its goals achieved by force are really secondary. For the left, the end justifies the means. For the right, and I hear I mean the true right, ends and means are one and the same. They're the same thing. Force is also an axiom of censorship and of totalitarianism. Whereas persuasion requires an appeal to reason, or at least to self-interest, you know, but, but that also requires some element or some function of reason. And so to persuade requires the consent of others in order to get their cooperation. And isn't it funny that the people who do the least persuading the lefties are always talking about cooperation because they mean cooperation at the force at, at the at the end of a gun you know that's what they mean by cooperation it's all it ever means they will not try and actually get you to cooperate they'll force you to cooperate you know they just dispense with the effort of persuasion and therefore of thought itself who needs thought if you don't need to persuade the left is all about wants and needs in contrast to the right's reason and argument stance. You know, but having wants and needs, and we all have them, no matter how strongly one may experience them, that in no way will help solve the reasoned approach that has to be taken to meet those wants and needs. It's like a baby born tabula rasa. It's hungry. It needs to be fed. It needs sleep. But it has not a clue of how to do that. And that in a way describes the state of the left wing, of the left in general. So, we have to make clear that when we say that the left is winning, that only refers to politics, to the political arena. In terms of achieving the left's uh, stated goals, and, and I have to be honest with you here, I don't take those goals as very very sincere to begin with, but let's give them the benefit of the doubt, shall we? In terms of achieving the left th- their stated goals, the left is an abysmal failure through and through. We haven't wiped out poverty, we haven't wiped out racism, we haven't wiped out crime or inequality, but we're doing a pretty damn good job of wiping out freedom and capitalism and individualism and democracy and freedom of speech and all of the other values associated with Western culture. Freedom of speech, of course, means having the right to disagree with one another peacefully, no matter how opposite or extreme our opinions. But the left is inherently intolerant to freedom of speech because then it would have to be heard if put to the test. <laughs> you wouldn't want that. And as you, may have no- as you may have heard yourself, the Quebec liberals, for example, have introduced Bill 59 in an effort to prevent any public cri- criticisms of Islam. As Salim Mansour, a regular guest on our show, put it in the pages of the National Post on September 1st under the heading Repress the Totalitarian Urge, He wrote, It is Liberal Premier Philip Coulard's contention that Muslim terrorism is brought about by critics of Islam. Imagine that, that's what's causing it. From this follows the view, if such criticisms are disallowed, then terrorism will end. The intent of Bill 59 is ironically consistent with the global agenda of the Organization of Islamic Cooperation, there's that word again, cooperation, pushed by Saudi Arabia, Iran, Turkey, and Islamist organizations worldwide. As a Muslim boy born and raised within the world of Islam, this is Salim speaking, I experienced the debilitating effects of a closed society on people and how their aspirations for freedom are daily crushed by a culture suspicious of and punishing any new thinking as subversion of religious-based customs. Bill 59 is not merely a diminution of liberal democracy, it is worse it is a betrayal of those Muslim immigrants and refugees in Quebec who came seeking freedom and democracy. And he's got that right. And then, of course, um, this was just a couple days before, also in the National Post. Uh, Salim's concerns were actually discussed earlier, but on a broader international base by Robert Fulford in an editorial entitled An Evil We Have Not Yet Begun to Comprehend, which appeared on August 29th. And he wrote, The ideology of ISIL creates people equipped with ISIL belief systems. A murderer can kill in good conscience because he thinks he's fulfilling the wishes of God. We are baffled by a form of evil that believes in its moral superiority and proudly advertises its crimes by video. Civilization has little experience with that attitude. The Nazis did not acknowledge the Holocaust and Stalinist Russia muffled views of arbitrary executions in the gulag. Even they were ashamed. Our failure to comprehend these random killings is so far-reaching that even in Canada, there are politicians who believe we do not need to fight ISIL. What makes ISIL uniquely dangerous is its appeal to some small but still considerable number of people throughout the world. ISIL attracts female recruits who comprised 25% of those reported, by appealing to their rejection of the loose sexual morality in the West. That's one of the reasons that we talk about sex quite frequently, or try to on this show, because it's an important element of what drives politics as well. And he writes a Twitter posting from one girl displayed her discomfort with the sexual freedom of the West. I don't feel like I belong in this era, she wrote. Once young people usually demanded more freedom, ISIS recruits, want less. Imagine that. In most cases we understand, or partly understand, the roots of ideologies we find abhorrent, but the ISIL era has plunged us into a sea of ignorance. ISIS upsets all our assumptions by acting outside what we've always considered human possibility. Understanding what makes it function and keeps it growing will require an exceptional reach of the imagination, he writes in his conclusion. Now, you know, Fulford's brief analysis of why Canadians don't get what it is that they're facing with Islamism and Islamists is is well done. But I, I'm a little take a little exception to his dead end argument however that we do not understand what makes a rationality function. I think we do, irrespective of the form it may take. I think we do know that we that we shield ourselves from that knowledge. Because when we do that, we can avoid taking any necessary action. It's it's, uh, it's called denial, and that motivation is the source of most forms of denial. Now, irrationality on its own is, after all, as philosopher John McMurray so often reminded us, simply another word for evil. It's about the failure or refusal to think. But by someone who's capable of doing it, by the way. You have to be capable of rationality before you can be irrational. Otherwise you're not dealing with a human being. Or not someone who, who's capable of exercising rights. They have to be restrained in some way. But we as a society are afraid to pronounce moral judgment because to do that would be to infringe on someone else's right to express evil ideas and to act on them. We think that somehow is equality. Evil is equal with good. And this capitulation to evil and its practice is not all that different from outright denial. The opposite of denial and capitulation is acceptance. And your motivation to act will continue to be suppressed if you're in that state of denial. But not everyone is. Not everyone's in a state of denial. And, and still others simply do not know or do not understand the true nature of the forces that are determining, determining their paths. One must always pronounce moral judgment, advised Ayn Rand, assuming the situation and opportunity to do so were appropriate. Simply saying, I disagree, is often enough, she reasoned. But to remain silent or complicit in the face of something you yourself morally disagree with is to sanction it. And, you know, today's political trend is running away from the political trinity of freedom, which can be summed up in the phrase, life, liberty, and property which can lead to what we would also call the pursuit of happiness. And we're moving rapidly towards the political tyranny or political trinity of tyranny, which can be summed up in the phrase, death, statism, and the commons of state control. And it leads to service and duty to others, meaning the state. That's what it always eventually means to. We see the causes and the symptoms all around us, or, or the symptoms of the causes. Racism primarily, as is the result of left ideologies. It always has been. We're dealing with major issues like Islam, uh, green, racism. These are all the left's calling card. And unreality has consumed public discourse to a degree today not seen in quite some time. There's more of a fear of the future than an expectation of better times ahead. I'm hearing that more than I'm hearing anything else. So what should our future be? What should we be heading for? Well, freedom and capitalism, hello? They they are more than objectives. They are the standard of the good. Once you've achieved either, you'll have both, and the political dilemma will be solved. Freedom and capitalism are the ideal ends and means that all societies should be striving to achieve. But that's our continuing discussion for another day, one that has to continue before those very words are no longer permitted to be spoken and don't you think i'm joking because it could happen so that's it for today well by the way something i forgot to mention during the opening segment of the show today uh, the fines and penalties associated with showing your marked ballot in the Canadian federal election, uh, they, they go up to a $1,000 fine or three months in prison, according to Elections Canada spokeswoman Diane Benson. So, happy voting. It'll be all over by the time we next return one week from today, so join us then when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, act right, do right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then.
7: Color it to black and white Under the
0: clothes, Everything will be alright Okay, I have to ask, you know, what about the white child Not interested in learning these trades He wants to go into the arts He's young, he's gifted And he wants to be, do something creative What does he do? No problem You see, this building here is devoted to
4: teaching the white children The, the fine arts Okay That's harmonica playing banjo playing, (laughs) singing the blues, and tap dancing. You see, these are skills that might come in handy when they grow up and need to earn some extra money while they're on welfare.